0: Because if you can rob the Federal Reserve by robbing its pseudo-blockchain, that becomes a massive systemic risk. And I don't think they can square that circle. I really don't.
1: Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. I'm Adam B. Levine, creator of the show and most recently an editor at Coindesk. And this is episode 427. Today on the show, we'll break from our recent format because there really is news worth discussing. We'll talk echoes of the dot-com era as we once again approach what looks like another opportunity for early majority adoption, and then deviate briefly into the nascent world of central bank digital currencies. We've got clips from the Federal Reserve, so I know that you're excited. This episode is sponsored by eToro, Brave.com, and listeners like you. Actually, just kidding on that last part, although we do appreciate you listening. You can find new episodes every Sunday at Coindesk.com, Let's Talk Bitcoin.com, and of course, at the show's independent, dedicated feed at ltbshow.com. Let's Talk Bitcoin is an independent show, wholly owned and operated by all of the hosts. We actually don't get any editorial direction out of really anywhere outside of my head. And the words that come out of our mouths while we're actually doing this thing. And of course, all opinions are our own. And if you'd like to sponsor the Let's Talk Bitcoin show, you can send me an email at adam at ltbshow.com. Today, we're joined by the other hosts of Let's Talk Bitcoin, Dr. Stephanie Murphy, early podcaster and early bitcoiner.
2: Hey, Adam, I'm excited for the show today. And author,
1: educator, but don't call him Bitcoin Jesus, it's Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hey, Adam,
0: so excited. We have clips from the Federal Reserve. I am tickled.
1: I know, right? It's a glorious day. Jonathan Mohan, however, is out today for ETH Denver. Thanks to everyone for being here. And thanks to you, the listeners, for sitting in on today's session. So this year, I set a goal for myself with the show to talk a lot less about these sort of transient news topics. In a 24-hour news cycle, you're a lot more likely to see someone get accused of money laundering or a mostly meaningless partnership deal than you are likely to see anything that really impacts the narrative or much less the technology that we've been following so closely for the last eight years. But this week is a little bit different. So let's dig in with our first clip.
3: Uh-huh. Okay. I gotta go. Hey, I'm Blockchain, what's up? You've either heard of me and you don't know what I do, or you've never heard of me and you don't know what I do. Or you know all about me, in which case, I don't know how you're here. Go watch a cat video or something. For the rest of you, here's what I do. First off, I'm not Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, or anything scary. Ah! Woof to you too. In fact, I make things less scary. I improve financial transactions like loans behind the scenes to make them more efficient, secure, and less costly. Which, if I work my magic right, can save you money. I'm a companies like Figure used to record, share, and exchange the data about your loan. Before me, this was all done manually, aka by people. And people can make mistakes. And then other people <laughs> have to find those mistakes and correct them, which all takes time and money. So how does Figure do it differently?
1: Please tell me this is a parody. It is not. This they is on TV.
3: To create an immutable record, meaning it can't be changed. So the administrators, trustees, and other people who used to verify all that paperwork can have more free time to pursue their scrapbooking dreams. So the mistakes are recorded forever. (laughs) you use figure to get a loan, I make a block. Hey, Carol. Seth. That block is a super secure digital record of the transaction. In fact, it's so secure, in order for me to create or append a block, I have to share my block with a network of unbiased computers called Nodes from trusted financial institutions all over the country. Yo. Hi. Oh, hey there. Howdy. And they all have to sign off on it to give me the go-ahead to make it. Good to go? Go, go, for, go for it. it. Which means I can always maintain the security and legitimacy or truth state of your data, making it uncompromisable. Try to say that five times fast.
2: Uncompromisable, uncompromisable, uncompromisable.
3: She's actually doing it. I'm like a vault, except a super secure vault with many different keys that gives you a big, long, undisputed (laughs) chain of truth or paper trail. But without all the paper. So, with Figure, we can pass that time and savings on to you. So you can get out of this place and onto a better place. Like, literally anywhere but here. Later! Save yourself! Okay, that's
1: pretty much it. Figure
2: power by blockchain. <laughs> wow. Oh, okay.
0: Hello, fellow kids. Can I inquire as to where I may purchase
1: one marijuana? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Okay. so Figure is a company that, as far as I can tell, is using a permissioned blockchain where they have financial intermediaries and financial institutions as people who are signing nodes. And as a company, they offer home equity lines, mortgage refinances, and student loan refinances. And their whole pitch is built around the idea that blockchain allows them to take out a lot of the timely parts of this process. And so what they say is that gone are the days of nine-week approvals and stacks of paperwork to get a loan, with the help of some awesome technology and your equity figures giving you access to your money at the speed of life. So that's the kind of spiel. I had not heard of Figure.com before this, but so we just listened to the two and a half minute long full version, but they're running 30 second versions of this on TV in addition to sort of the longer version that's on the web. And they're very funny. <laughs>
0: Oh, I'm sorry. I just threw up in my mouth a bit. That was
1: really bad. Now, the part I haven't told you is that this is also a puppet called Blocky that is like a stack of fuzzy blocks with a sneery face on it that then has plastic hands that wave around and it has chains coming off of it.
2: Like a blockchain Muppet.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly.
0: This is the definition of fellow kids. If you're not familiar, fellow kids is a meme showing Steve Buscemi trying to be an undercover cop. He looks like he's, you know, he looks like Steve Buscemi in a high school and he's pretending to be a high schooler and he's got a skateboard over his shoulder and a t-shirt that says music band or rock band or something like that and a backwards baseball cap and he walks up to the kids and goes, hello, fellow kids may I inquire as to where I might purchase one marijuana (laughs) or some stupid thing like that. And it's a meme used to criticize companies that try to be hip and fail miserably by trying to appeal to some youth demographic from the perspective of some boomer mentality and are just clueless as to how ridiculous they look.
1: I don't disagree with any of that. I feel like they're leaning into that angle with this. And they definitely are trying to appeal to a youth demographic. Honestly, the other thing that this made me think of as soon as I saw it was Pets.com. I just couldn't get it out of my head.
2: Was that the one that basically kicked off the whole dot-com bubble bursting thing?
1: Exactly. It was the sock puppet with the advertisements. It was explaining why you would want to use something crazy like the internet to shop for your pet supplies, basically, instead of just going to a store. And this feels really similar to me on this. Maybe it's different, but I'm having a hard time seeing it.
2: So have we reached peak uh, proprietary blockchains? Blockchains. (laughs) Cynicism? Peak cynicism, maybe too.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just... Ugh. It's funny in a way, but at the same time, there's nothing funny about it. Because what they're trying to sell to you here is the ability to not do anything revolutionary to do exactly business as usual with exactly the same people in the same positions of power, abusing your private information, supporting surveillance capitalism, excluding financial participation by massive sections of the population, and turning finance into this giant control structure, only now with
3: cartoons.
0: Isn't fascism more fun when you have cartoons? Yay!
2: Right. And they're also stepping out in front of the parade and sort of implying, hey, we thought of this innovative idea. We're taking this really complicated technology and we're making it so that you can get a better, faster mortgage approval. Isn't that great?
0: And of course, they threw some shade on Bitcoin as well. Right. It's scary. Boo,
1: woof woof. Mm hmm. Scary. The question is, what's the point of this technology? Is the point of the technology to do stuff that's impossible now, even if it's not very palatable politically or requires people to learn something new? Or is the point to take the services that we already have and make them better by introducing this technology? So the challenge here is that the current system really does suck. And it doesn't suck so much in the United States if you're dealing with it there. But especially once you get outside of the United States, trying to cross borders becomes very, very challenging from a legal perspective. And so cryptocurrency, whether you're talking about Bitcoin or just a settlement layer using whatever, if it bypasses all of the corruption that's inherent in the current system, that's still a meaningful improvement.
0: Yes, but none of this that we've been talking to does that, right? So this federated permissions bullshit chain is let's take the current system that has one corrupt financial institution controlling your life and instead create a consortium or cartel of five corrupt financial institutions that control your life. And it doesn't change the fundamental fact that the barriers of borders and censorship and financial inclusion and participation are still all there. In fact, if anything, this might make it worse because it increases the surveillance possibilities of these systems.
2: Yeah, and also they were representing it as immutable. They were saying something like truth chain blocks of truth. And we all know that that's not generally a property of proprietary so-called blockchains. They're not immutable. They can be changed at any time if the companies decide to change them.
0: At zero cost, most importantly,
2: because... Because it's not based on proof of work.
0: Right, which imposes fundamental energy baseline costs regardless of how much consensus you have to modify the truth. There's always the cost. You still have to do the work to prove the work. But not only that, they're saying that immutability equals truth. No, immutability allows the mistakes and lies to be recorded forever. And at the same time, was about things that are extrinsic to the blockchain that cannot be measured or confirmed and require oracles or other third-party verifiers to be verified, what you do is you end up recording the mistake or the lie and then creating a really difficult situation where it takes forever to untangle.
1: One of the things that's interesting about these types of federated blockchains and which I think is worth discussing here is the idea that if the incentives are not aligned on the part of the participants who are actually playing the role of the signing nodes then effectively you do have some immutability because there needs to be collusion between people whose incentives don't necessarily align. Now, whether that's true here is an entirely different matter, but it is to say that there is something to the argument that they're making. Again, it's not as good as what cryptocurrency is. It's not as good as any of the stuff that we're actually interested in, but they're using it to optimize a system that currently is just terrible in general. I can see the argument in favor of that.
0: And I can see the argument against that, which is that while it may improve some aspects of it, it also makes other aspects of it much, much worse. One of them that we haven't discussed yet is this general idea of diffusion of responsibility. Think about it. If you are now dealing with your mortgage application that is managed by a federation of five banks or part of a cartel that have different interests in terms of how they apply policy and restrictions, but very, very closely aligned interests in that they want to screw you over and make lots of money, they can now shift the responsibility. If you have a problem, who do you have a problem with?
2: Yeah, don't blame me. It's just the blockchain.
0: Listen, it's the Federation, sir. I'm sorry. The computer tells me that you are dead. (laughs) Ma'am, I'm standing right in front of you. Well, the computer is always right. Keep in mind, this runs on a truth chain. Clearly, you are dead.
2: Or what about the computer tells me that you live in an undesirable neighborhood or something like that? I mean, this is an actual thing. Like one of the factors that goes into credit scores and loan applications is if you live in a so-called high minority area, that's basically a certain neighborhood. Yeah, so this exacerbates
0: financial exclusion and financial marginalization of certain communities. It creates even more barriers That's exactly the point of it.
2: Yeah, and so if you have this set of rules from a blockchain or from a consortium of banks and you want to protest a policy like that or even ask questions about it, then it's even easier for them to say, well, you know, we don't make the rules. The blockchain makes the rules. Sorry, watch our explainer video and you can figure out how you want to proceed.
0: Our explainer video is really fun because it's a cartoon, by the way. A cartoon that's going to tell you why you have no future.
1: Moving off of the product for a second, because I think that broadly, we've already established our sort of perspective on that. You know, this sort of campaign going out to normal people who have very limited exposure to Bitcoin, very limited exposure to blockchain, I sort of feel like there's an analog here to what we saw with Libra. And I wonder kind of what you guys think about that.
2: I think the idea of explain blockchain like I'm five years old is not bad. All of us had questions about it when we first heard about the technology, even though we may have heard it explained to us in a very easy to understand way. It's a concept that takes a little bit of work. And so I don't really dispute that, but it seems like it comes with some twisting of the truth. I wonder if that has to be the case. It probably is always the case when it's a company that's advertising their own product. But what resources do we have that let people know what this technology is in a really simple and easy to understand way? that don't have the bias of a sponsorship or an advertisement?
0: That's the fundamental risk that comes with mainstream adoption, which is that mainstream adoption also means that this is a ripe target for unscrupulous marketers and for this wishy-washy amorality of corporations where they manage to both have no moral spine and at the same time have this kind of puritanical, self-righteous attitude the ability of the unbanked, for example, to engage outside of the system because the system won't even accept them is scary. And they push that. And that amorality becomes immorality in practice and causes great hardship and pain for a lot of people. So The problem is that these are not just random misconceptions or random misinformation. They're very, very directed, deliberate misinformation that is geared towards elevating a specific point of view, a specific point of view that already marginalizes billions of people and is quite comfortable doing so and perpetuating that situation. So this is insidious and it's toxic. And that's part of the problem we see with Libra and other things. Now, the good news is, That again, this is not competition to crypto and it doesn't help explain blockchain to anyone. All it does is it destroys the ability to find any meaning or truth in this space because it's flooded by propaganda. It's one of the reasons why I try to do my work without sponsors so that we can cut through that propaganda. Because if you depend on your revenue from any corporate source, this is what happens.
1: I think that... As we've developed our perspectives over the last eight years, I've really come to believe that the way that we're going to get mainstream adoption is going to be by the mainstream deciding what they like about it and then talking about that. Because the things that we like about it aren't going to go away. But the big problem that we have right now is that nobody cares. And so if this means that people care, even for this one thing, it's definitely not a 100% positive thing because as you said, they have a perspective on it but it's not a perspective that actually is fundamentally incorrect. And they're not saying it's Bitcoin. They're saying that it's useful to them for this one particular thing. And they think that it'll save people money. And if people think that too, and they try it and they like it, I don't actually see that as a problem.
0: I do. I disagree completely,
1: Adam. Sorry. So what is
0: mainstream? And again, this goes back to the same argument we've been having since 2013. To me, mainstream is the other six billion. To me, mainstream is the vast, vast numbers of people out there who do not have access to fundamental financial services and desperately need them. Do they care? Hell yes, they do. They absolutely care about this stuff. They maybe don't know yet how they can use this technology to resolve the problems that they have, but they very clearly see that they have these problems with financial inclusion, with their national currencies, with their political system, with corruption, with bureaucracy with financial cartels, with all of the other things that we see. And those problems are the mainstream. The mainstream is not the billion and a half people in Western democracies who enjoy more or less stable currencies. That is the exception. So when we talk about mainstream adoption, mainstream adoption is not a Midwestern dude buying coffee at Starbucks with Bitcoin. That is not mainstream adoption. That is adoption by a privileged elite. Mainstream adoption means six billion people who are currently more or less, to varying degrees, excluded from the financial system, having opportunities for financial self-empowerment for a future for their children that they do not have today. Do they need that? Do they care about that? Yes, absolutely. And they care a lot more than whether their mortgage takes one week to organize with a lender or one day to organize with a lender. Right, but those two
1: things aren't mutually exclusive.
0: No, they're not mutually exclusive at all. Both can happen simultaneously. One is incredibly important, fundamental, radical, and world's changing, and the other one is boring.
1: (laughs) I totally agree with that. But if you look at how technology gets adopted, it's typically not in these underprivileged places that lack the resources and time and infrastructure to really make it happen. It's something that happens typically where it doesn't need to happen first because there's the bandwidth and the attention span to actually do something new that might be risky, that might not work, or that might be great. And then it sort of trickles out from there. Trickle is the wrong word.
2: No, but a rising tide lifts all boats kind of thing. Yeah, I see what you mean.
1: Yeah, you establish a base level of like oh, this is actually important, and then you hit economies of scale there where you start to get network effect, and then it's much easier for it to actually spread to these other places because they're not trying to do something new that's unproven. They're just trying to adopt a model that's already working elsewhere, and they have a lot more reason to do it. We're
0: not talking about adopting
1: the same technology. We're talking about adopting two completely
0: different technologies that are completely at odds. So the adoption of blockchain with with the fuzzy puppet and all of that bullshit by Western privileged, financially included people does not create any of the infrastructure capability, understanding, learning, or anything else that actually leads to the six billion. This is exactly trickle-down in that it's a myth. (laughs) The problem here is what you're doing is saying, well, if institutional investors, the big banks, central banks, and the authorities at large finally approve, endorse, give the blessing, and wholeheartedly adopt and jump in with both feet into this magical crypto revolution then the other 6 billion will get crypto. It will never happen that way because what we're talking about adopting endorsing approving etc is not crypto, it's the exact opposite of crypto. So, this doesn't help. It doesn't help at all with financial inclusion in fact, it moves us in the opposite direction. It gives people the illusion that what they're getting is related somehow to these cryptocurrencies. But in fact, all of its principles, all of its design characteristics, and all of the motivations are the exact opposite. This is surveillance money. It's surveillance databases masquerading as a popular people-driven technology revolution in order to serve the people who already have power with even more power. Not only does it not do anything for adoption among the six billion, it actually pushes us back.
1: What I think I've witnessed over the last number of years is the slow, progressive normalization of the concepts, of the ideas of what we're talking about here. And it's not to say that everyone has the same version of them, but using common language does have the impact of taking the kind of weird factor out of it. And for a long time, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin has sort of been stuck behind that. It's not to say that this solves the problem, but I do think this moves the ball forward just by getting it out in front of people in a way that's going to make them laugh, you know, that's going to make them have sort of a positive association with this type of thing. Because if there's one thing everybody agrees on, it's that banks are slow and terrible, right? I'd agree
0: with you if it wasn't for the very obvious fact that right there in the beginning of the clip, they go out of their way to make a very, very clear differentiation and paint Bitcoin as scary. So they're not promoting the same concepts.
1: Are they painting it as scary or are they acknowledging that people think that it's scary, that the demographic they're talking to already thinks that? And so they're diffusing a potential issue or a question that would otherwise come up.
2: How many layers of irony deep are we here? I mean,
1: <laughs> right, exactly.
2: <laughs> right. I mean, yes, their
0: devious plan to acknowledge the propaganda that they've already been deliberately spreading for
1: 10 years. Well, who's they? I mean, again, this is a company, not the narrative that's against cryptocurrency. But companies have been spreading these
0: narratives from the very beginning because it's very much in their interest to paint this disruptive innovation as something that is evil, that is criminal, that is only be used by dirty, nasty, wrong people who are not the right people to use this technology. That narrative has been dominant throughout the history of cryptocurrencies, and they go out of their way to reintroduce it in this clip. So they're not really doing anything for us other than demonstrating the extreme privilege and cynicism that exists in the financial industry. And motivating me and others to completely destroy that industry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Well, if we're looking for some positive news coming out of the mainstream media about Bitcoin, let's listen into CNBC Fast Money now.
4: How's that for a graphic? Uh, Bitcoin's boom time continues back above 10,000. Get this if you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Bitcoin is now up 44% this year. So, Tim, we went from like zero to 20,000, back to 4,000, now back to 10,000. Is anything different this time around?
1: I think what's different is, first of all, you've shaken out a lot of weak players. You've shaken out a lot of the momentum. You've certainly gone further down the road in terms of institutional uh, follow through. You've certainly had major banks in the world talk about their own blockchain platforms. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. Gold's been rallying. Why shouldn't Bitcoin be rallying?
2: Yeah. I, I mean, I agree with you. I think that last part, if you talk about a Fed just gone nuts as guy thinks it has or all, all the central banks going nuts, I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin, plus I, institutional interest. As well.
1: Yeah, but listen, so we got rates lower, we got gold up, we got utilities up, we got Bitcoin up. So it's all
4: acting like safe haven. That just takes me back to the MAGA trade, what's going on there that just seems very bifurcated in this market where they're doing that heavy lifting. But these other things that we identify as safe haven assets have really perked up Possible in Possible coronavirus impact here. I know a lot of the buyers come from that part of the world and you wonder if they're looking to protect their money, maybe hiding it in Bitcoin. Perhaps, but I do think the Karen's...
2: Bitcoin, the cure for coronavirus. Bankers
5: are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency. Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat
4: currencies, Bitcoin is the victor, Brian. And well, it certainly has been a 44% this year. All right.
1: Okay, so that's it.
4: Oh, God.
1: Well, Bitcoin is the winner, right? It's also important to note that there wasn't anybody on the show who is like a native cryptocurrency person. This was like the normal cast of CNBC Fast Money talking about this stuff.
0: I think they stopped inviting me to that show when I could no longer hide the effects of my gag reflex being triggered while on camera.
1: I was going to say, I think that the projectile vomiting probably was responsible for that. Probably, yes, indeed
0: gleefully talking about how coronavirus is going to make us all rich is precisely the kind of narrative that would make me gag on air.
1: Well, and actually worth noting, I don't have a clip for it, but The Guardian, which again is another kind of mainstream newspaper and online news source, had a story about exactly that. There's two narratives that are being talked about with regards to coronavirus. On the one hand, there's like the Nobody is increasing their mining hardware because all of the hardware is locked down. And so the rate of increase of difficulty has gone down as a result of coronavirus. And then on the other hand, the narrative is that people in China are trying to get money out and they're doing that through Bitcoin and that perhaps could be part of this. And again, it's important to note that it's not like a crypto person who's arguing this in the Guardian or on CNBC. These are just normal financial journalists. The asset has become normal enough and there's become this history of it responding or at least looking like it's responding under certain scenarios, probably, again, just as a self-fulfilling prophecy. But still, it looks like it, and that narrative is actually making it into the mainstream media that goes far beyond us.
0: But again, one of the things that you see here is that a lot of that discussion was the typical horse race analysis that happens throughout mainstream media and traditional journalism. That is sickening to watch, and it happens whether we're talking about elections, whether we're talking about political parties, whether we're talking about current events, or whether we're talking about Bitcoin. And the analysis is: who's winning and who's losing and why might they be able to win or lose, and not at all about what are the principles and what matters and what is true and what is not true. No qualitative analysis, only quantitative analysis of who's getting closer to the finish line or pulling further ahead from. The other people in the race or the other assets in the race. And that basically devalues and degrades the public sphere of debate. If everything is treated purely as a leaderboard and all we can see is who's winning and who's losing without any interest in discussing the actual merits, the actual fundamentals, the actual principles that are driving this, then it's a pointless discussion. It's completely shallow.
2: I think there's a personality type, though. Like a lot of people. This kind of discussion makes total sense to them. They like to think in terms of who's winning and who's losing. And also, I think that it is a winning technology, no matter what happens with the fluctuations day to day. So over time, it is going to be a winner and that's going to be played out in the market mechanism of price. And so I guess I don't have that big of a problem, but it's not the kind of show I'm super interested in watching, which is why we provide an alternative here on Let's Talk Bitcoin. Yeah.
0: The other thing is the obsession with measuring the success of Bitcoin on metrics that apply to traditional financial instruments and therefore framing it in the context of traditional financial instruments. Because that's exactly the same as we saw in the early days of the internet, where it was literally measured in terms of how many fax machines it could replace. And that's missing the bigger point, which is what kinds of things does it enable that cannot be done today? What kind of new things does it do? that cannot be done today instead of simply looking at it as an entirely equivalent slightly better and measure it against the existing financial system among other things one of the challenges here is measuring the price of bitcoin in US dollars thinking of bitcoin as having a price and then measuring that price in US dollars because the problem is you don't know what you're measuring are you measuring Bitcoin moving up, or are you measuring the dollar moving down?
1: But that's true about everything. And this brings us back to the topic we were just discussing, which is that they're talking about it like it's normal. And I don't mean normal to us, I mean normal to them. They're fitting it into their worldview, and they're talking about it just like everything else. And I think that if you look even just a couple of years ago, that wasn't true. It was this weird outlier thing that nobody trusted, and nobody thought was going to be around. And as time has gone on, it Really feels like that's been beaten out of the mainstream, right? They've accepted it. They might not talk about the parts of it that we like, but they've accepted it in a fundamental way. And I think that's important.
0: I'm beginning to feel uncomfortable with the normalization of my weirdness.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Just again, like even people who came in just a little bit after us, people who came in 2015, 2016, they had a fundamentally different idea of what they thought was important about this technology. And I don't think that we can expect that everyone is going to feel about it or evaluate it for the things that we do. And I think that as time goes on, you know, Andreas, when the Libra announcement first came out, you talked about how this would basically lead people down a rabbit hole that they would find a dead end at the end of, right? And then Bitcoin is still there as a thing that continues to go, right? That actually offers those sort of longer-term solutions. So how is this any different from that? I mean, like, I just see all of this as good from that. It's not. It's not different from that.
0: But then again, I generally don't feel comfortable with the idea that all of this is simply a matter of opinion and all opinions are equal. I do think that fundamentally, all of these analysts are missing the point and there is a point and there is a truth and there is a right here. It's not simply a matter of conflicting opinions and conflicting perspectives and all of those are equally valid and equally true.
1: Right, but I think we all acknowledge that our perspective is very much the minority right now and we're fighting against what is effectively the way that things are. Fundamentally, in many of the things that we want cryptocurrency and specifically Bitcoin to accomplish, we are fighting a meaningfully entrenched status quo that not only controls how life works as far as these financial systems are concerned, but controls even how it's talked about. CNBC is an excellent example of a media source that's built around that fundamental, the way that things are right now. And maybe it changes, but getting from here to there, we've got an underpants gnome problem. It's like, step one, collect underpants. Step two, question mark. Step three, profit. We don't know what step two is. And until we figure that out, I think that things like this, I see them as more positive than negative. I mean, clearly it'd be better if they were talking about it in a way that was accurate and actually portrayed the values. But I don't even know if many people would care about that who are in their audience. I think that this is how those people want that news.
6: What if there was a better user experience for browsing the internet? A way to take back your online privacy, prevent creepy ads from tracking you all around the internet, save on battery life and data. What if it was easy to switch to and completely free to download? And it even had a built-in option to support your favorite content creators while doing your normal online activities. Well, now there is a better user experience for browsing the internet. Brave is the web browser reimagined. It gives you unmatched speed, security, and privacy. And Brave even allows you to opt in to earn rewards which you can use to support your favorite content creators. Go to brave.com slash ltb and switch to brave today. It's super easy to switch to brave and brave is free to download and use. Give it a try. That's brave.com slash ltb brave.com slash ltb. We'd like to thank eToro for sponsoring this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Why use eToro? eToro is a large, well-established, U.S.-regulated trading platform that has over a trillion dollars of trading volume on the platform per year. eToro offers powerful trading tools made simple. You can create a diverse crypto portfolio, get access to smart charts and analysis on every asset, and eToro also has social features and the opportunity to practice and learn with a virtual trading mode. eToro offers low spreads, no commissions, and no hidden fees. Why wait? Getting started takes just minutes at etoro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O dot com. Crypto assets are volatile, and trading them carries risk. Please trade responsibly.
1: On the subject of Libra, what Libra really effectively accomplished, whether or not it ever comes out, is it made governments around the world really concerned about the idea that a company with two billion users could effectively really provide competition in a way perhaps that Bitcoin has not yet, simply by nature of the fact that they wouldn't be able to stop it if it got started. If it gets into the hands of two million people, that's a huge advantage and something that really anything outside of the U.S. dollar in its current state does not have. So, a couple of days ago, the Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell was answering some questions, and we pulled a couple from that which I'm going to play now. Here's the first one to this issue.
5: Um, now, in a speech last week, Governor Brainerd highlighted uh, quote, the role of central bank digital currencies in ensuring that sovereign currencies stay at the center of each nation's financial system." Uh, Do you agree with her characterization? Um, In particular, do you think that establishing a digital dollar would help ensure that the U.S. dollar continues to serve as the core of the U.S. and the world's financial system?
4: Well, to take the the first part of that, I think having um, a single government currency at the heart of the financial system is something that has served us well. It's a very, very basic thing that uh, really hasn't been in question and I think you know. Uh, before we move away from that, we should really understand what we're what we're doing. So I think uh, preserving the centrality of a of a of a you know a central, widely accepted currency that is accepted and trusted uh, is an enormously important thing. Um, I think whether a digital currency moves us along that path or not is an open question, as as you know. Um, every major central bank is currently taking a deep look at that, that we feel like that's our obligation. Technology has now made this possible. Uh, private sector's innovating. They're doing it. So I think it, it's very much uh, incumbent on us to, and other central banks to, to understand the costs and benefits and benefits trade-offs associated with a possible digital currency. Okay, so the thing that I didn't mention in the setup for that clip, which is worth mentioning,
1: is that so it was Libra, then it was China, and then it was basically lots and lots and lots of other governments, either because A, they're concerned about China or B, because, well, since somebody else is doing it, there actually are meaningful advantages for smaller countries to issue their own type of sovereign digital token that can replace or at least serve another form of their local money, but that doesn't need to clear through the U.S. dollar. So what was said in that clip effectively is that the U.S. benefits from the centralized nature of the financial system where the U.S. dollar is that center point, is at the center. And so he was saying that we should be careful not to do that. And whether or not the U.S. adding a digital currency to it can help it or not, that's very much an unknown. And he's not wrong about that. Adding a U.S. dollar digital currency, that might, best case scenario, retain the current dominance of the U.S. dollar. But it gets a whole lot harder to do that especially if you don't have one, but as China comes out and pushes their own version of a central bank digital currency into all of the countries that they've been providing financing to through the Belt and Road Initiative. And again, like there's a competition here that cryptocurrency, I've always hoped Bitcoin will provide, and I believe that someday it will, but it's being kickstarted by effectively Libra, then China, and now everybody else, with the Fed as kind of the most recent to at least study the issue, because they can't not at this point, as they said.
2: Well, there already are these stable coins that are pegged to the U.S. dollar. I mean, that's kind of close. It's not obviously issued by the Fed, and it's not what the Fed would like. But there already is sort of like a U.S. dollar digital currency out there, more than one.
1: Yes, but it has restrictions. All of the projects that are doing that are heavily regulated, and they all have restrictions in terms of how they can be used and how they can be transferred and what status you have that really isn't necessarily true if the U.S. government were to do it itself. But again, I agree with you, there's sort of a limited benefit to them doing it. Really, the question just here is, how does the U.S. in this current environment maintain its central reserve status, whether or not really it goes down the path of a digital dollar? They don't. And that's the
0: simple truth, they don't. The essence of conservatism is nostalgia for a great golden age that no longer exists, and then refusal to accept the fact that that age has passed. And it's most characteristic in the form of the last days of empire, which is what we're watching unfold in every sphere of public life across the world today, as a previously unipolar world is turning into this fragmented geopolitical mess. The bottom line is the age of American empire is over. It has been over for a while. And now it's just a matter of how many decades it's going to take until that is an unavoidable truth with deep impact across the way of life for all Americans. But the idea that we can somehow preserve the centrality of the dollar, the golden age of empire, the ability to use currency as a geopolitical tool, the ability to project power and have unlimited imperialism and control over the world in any place we want, any time we want, that's gone. It's over. And now the question is, what happens when we emerge into a new multipolar world? And it's not a multipolar world only between nation states. As I described it in my talk on Libra, it's now at least a three-part problem where you have state currency in the form of digital currencies from central banks. You have corporate currencies in the form of Libra. And then you have people currencies, private currencies that exist outside of the control of either of the above in the form of Bitcoin and open, uh, open cryptocurrencies and open blockchains. All of those will exist, and they'll all jockey for power. And there is no centrality in this domain. There is no central actor that wins everything. That game is over.
1: So in the CNBC clip that we played a little bit earlier, one of the things that it said is that in a world where central banks are effectively in a race to the bottom, Bitcoin wins. And I think that that's something that we're seeing here too, is that as all of these digital currencies come out, As we see governments around the world actually start to issue these things and them actually start to get used, you still fundamentally have that counterparty risk in the government. And it's something where they can effectively change the supply and do other things just like central banks do with the money supplies now. And that's something where Bitcoin really, really does stand apart because of the way that the issuance schedule is predictable, long term, and basically immutable outside of a consensus within the network itself, which seems very far fetched given how important that number is.
0: And that's just the issuance schedule, but if you look at it across the five or six criteria of an open blockchain and you ask, is a central bank digital currency open? No. Is it borderless? No. Is it neutral? No. Is it censorship resistant No. Is it immutable? No. Is it publicly verifiable? Maybe, but only for some participants, not for others. And if you look at all of the totality of that, a central bank digital currency can only be an incremental improvement over a central bank analog currency or a central bank non-blockchain digital currency or MySQL currency that we have today. It doesn't do the open, borderless, neutral, immutable, censorship resistant and publicly verifiable trick that something like Bitcoin does. It's not just the issuance, it's all of the other restrictions that fundamentally represent a 19th century way of thinking about currency that is now obsolete. That framework is obsolete. Now the only question is how long before the majority of people break out of that framework, even if their own government is still stuck in it. When Powell says we will, he is not saying we, the American people, will do X, Y, O, Z. He's saying we, the central bank, will do that. But the problem here is that the central bank may do one thing, and the vast majority of people may do something completely different and likely. Many of them will do a combination of things. The population of the country will use the central bank digital currency, they'll use the corporate Facebook, Libra currency, and some small part of that population will use the open public blockchains and open cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin to achieve a degree of empowerment and freedom that they previously
1: couldn't. Let's just jump into the next topic.
5: So how would you characterize um, the you know your state of progress on this compared to other countries uh, you know the Swedish central bank developing an e-krona the um, well the Chinese you know the the reason that there was so, one of the reasons there was so much concern about the libra project is they would immediately have scale uh, if they just rolled out the project the the another entity in a position to do that is the Chinese government to roll out at scale using their their uh, already established uh, payment by cell phone systems. They would immediately have a scale comparable to Facebook uh, if they rolled that out. And uh, so how would you characterize our ability to respond to this potentially competitive threat?
4: Yeah, so we're, we're working hard on it. We have a lot of projects going a lot of efforts going on on that right now. We haven't, we haven't had the problem that many of – you mentioned uh, Sweden. A lot of the northern European economy, economies have moved away from cash in, in, uh, to, a, to a remarkable degree, and that really has not happened in the U.S. economy, even though it seems like it must have happened uh, with our kids not, not using cash very much. Nonetheless, uh, the, the amount of cash in the, US econo- cash in the U.S. economy continues to grow at, at faster than nominal GDP. So it's yeah, but a if you look at the
5: if you look at the the curve of a adoption of payment by cell phone you know it starts slowly and then all of a sudden it just happens and so that it seems like that can that transition can happen in a period of of just a couple of years and so we have to be able to respond you know if that's the driving factor then we have to be in a position where we can respond by you know rolling out for example a digital dollar in on the couple of year timescale. And so, so I, I just—I yeah. I
4: completely agree with that. And I think, frankly, Libra really lit a fire under that, and, and it was a bit of a wake-up call that that this is coming fast and could come in a way that is, uh, you know, that is quite widespread and systemically important uh, fairly quickly in, in, if you use one of these um, uh, big tech networks like like uh, like Libra did. So we're, we're working hard on it. We fully appreciate the. Importance of uh, of making quick progress. We have not decided to do this, though it it, it is not. I think that that there are many questions that need to be answered around a digital currency for the United States, including issues of cyber, you know, cyber issues, privacy issues. um, Many many operational alternatives present themselves, and so we're going to be working through all that and, and doing that work thoroughly and responsibly. Okay, okay, that's enough of that clip. One thing we haven't really talked about is
1: that, Andreas, in that talk about Libra a long time ago, you basically called that it probably wasn't ever going to happen. And it's looking more and more like that's true. Like Libra, just as a concept, really kicked things off. But governments have had the ability to say, no, you can't do that unless blah, 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 blah. Right, And for Libra, it's much the same as any other project that would try to be put under that, which is that complying with the regulations sort of negates the reason to even use the technology to do this because the regulation is in large part antithetical to the technology, even in a situation like Libra.
0: It just means that there's a vast difference between Libra the idea and Libra the deployed product. There may be a product deployed, and what that product will be is PayPal++ plus plus Facebook. It's a Facebook version of PayPal that has much broader reach, much bigger political impact, much bigger privacy and surveillance impact but has nothing to do with Libra or cryptocurrencies or anything like that, because that vision was untenable in the regulatory system and the political system for a company like Facebook or probably any company to pull off in a meaningful way. PayPal had a better chance of doing that. But the bottom line is that that doesn't mean that the political impact of Libra doesn't happen. It doesn't need to be a product. The idea itself and the proposal itself is massively disruptive on a political level, even though it is zero disruptive on a technological and implementation level. Because what it does is it forces people to confront the new reality. Until now, this was just a game being played by a bunch of weirdos on the internet. And it didn't have any systemic, meaningful implications, even though clearly the fact that that technology exists and can be implemented at scale has enormous implications. They could ignore it as long as they didn't think it would reach scale. Libra changed that political calculation, even though it didn't change any of the underlying technology. But in the long run, all of these discussions are about giant government IT projects that will somehow achieve these magical goals as long as we throw enough billions into a government IT contractor. And if you've paid attention to any large government IT projects, what they end up being is giant wastes of taxpayer money that end up creating fragile, half-broken systems that are 10 to 15 years behind what the private sector is actually doing and what's independently being created by private companies. So great, they can build the CompuServe of Bitcoin, the healthcare.gov of Facebook's Libra, the irs.gov of PayPal. That's all they can build because that's how government bureaucracies work. The interesting thing is nobody is asking here whether the Federal Reserve or any government entity can actually successfully build a secure central bank digital currency at scale. I have enormous doubts about that because the biggest problem with something like that is, that, is how easy something like that would be to hack. The fundamental security mechanism in central bank digital currencies that already exists is that these are massively fragmented federated systems with incompatible standards maintained in independent databases by independent parties. And that decentralization actually makes it more secure than what they're envisioning here. They take all of that and try to centralize it under one database and one control in a federated system, and all of that security goes out the window. And that's a fundamental problem, because if you can rob the Federal Reserve by robbing its pseudo-blockchain, that becomes a massive systemic risk. And I don't think they can square that circle.
1: I really don't. So here's a terrible question. What's worse, China issuing a central bank digital currency or Libra going live with what they have been trying to do?
0: China issuing a central bank digital currency. Why? Because Facebook can't kill people.
2: Are you sure about that?
0: (laughs) Yes, not to that degree. Like China actually has a physical monopoly of violence and the authority within its land and any other land it seems that it likes to commit genocide. And it's doing so in some cases already. And so a state actor with a monopoly of violence over a captive population of more than a billion people over a large geographic area and possession of nuclear weapons is always more dangerous than any corporation even a large multinational corporation like Facebook. The problem, of course, is if Facebook does launch Libra, you know, a century later, you end up with the equivalent of the East India Company, in which case they will have a military and political control over a continent and be killing people actively because currency creates sovereignty. And now that we flipped it so that it's not sovereignty creates currency, but currency creates sovereignty, Facebook Libra will as a currency, create sovereignty for Facebook in effect that they will be able to use to project power. And in 100 years, that's a nation state or some kind of quasi-corporate thing like the East India Company that conquers entire continents. That's a horrible scenario, but that's decades in the future. Whereas right now, China can create a dystopian surveillance, totalitarian, fascist nightmare which they already have, and add currency to that mix.
1: Well, it turns out that the Federal Reserve Governor is thinking along the same lines
5: as you. Let's go to the clip
1: now.
3: Do
5: you, do you feel as though you have adequate visibility into what the Chinese are doing on this? Do you have sort of working-level contacts uh, that give you some idea of what their rollout is likely to do, like,
4: likely to look like? Yes. I mean, I, I don't, we, we, we certainly have that, um, but... Uh, You know, they're in a completely different institutional context. There are things that, that, for example, the idea of having a ledger where you where you know everybody's payments that's not something that would be, you know, particularly attractive in the United States context. It's not a problem in China. So, um, but nonetheless, um, but so from a competitive that was the part of the quote that I wanted. Okay, so same
1: question. What's worse? the U.S. creating a central bank digital currency or China creating a central bank digital currency?
0: China creating a central bank digital currency, again, at least from my perspective. And the reason is that in the U.S., at least for now, it is politically and legally untenable to not only create a central bank digital currency successfully, but also then to ban all alternatives and create a system of surveillance and control that can enforce that ban in a meaningful way without any opposition, constitutional challenge, etc., All of that goes away in China. So in China, not only can they create that, but they can also then force a billion people to use it and ban any alternative to it, which is the first thing they're going to do as soon as they've created it. And that's far more dangerous. In the US, if they did create this, they couldn't simultaneously ban private activity that created alternatives. They could create carrot and stick mechanisms, make it very difficult with regulation and AML, and they're already doing that with capital gains calculations, et cetera, and make it very palatable when you're doing business with government to use that digital currency instead. But they can't outright force complete state monopoly and the banning of all private commerce on alternative systems, whereas in China they can.
1: Over the years, we've seen a number of stories come out where basically the Federal Reserve or the U.S. government in general has politicized or almost weaponized the financial system, the SWIFT system, sort of the international transfer mechanisms. I think you're right that in the United States, there's perhaps a better degree of that. But outside of the United States, it feels like when I heard him say that, that the idea that a ledger that records everybody's transactions or being able to kind of see that was not a desirable thing to the United States, that actually Doesn't really make sense to me based on how I kind of see things happening now.
0: It's a straightforward lie. There is absolutely clear evidence that financial transactions, which are exempt from a broad range of intelligence related legislation like the Patriot Act and FISA and things like that, are directly scrutinized and collected by American intelligence agencies and by law enforcement agencies without warrants. And therefore, it's a lie they already collect all of that information. And that is exactly the fundamental difference that exists between China and America when it comes to the adoption of central digital currencies. The Federal Reserve felt the need to lie about the necessity for totalitarian surveillance. In China, they don't have to lie. They can just tell the truth. We're going to watch everything you do and you will be punished if you step out of line. Here, they still have to maintain the pretense.
5: And
1: that's a wrap for episode 427 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks to everybody for participating today, Andreas, Stephanie. This was a very good conversation. This episode was sponsored by Brave.com and eToro.com and featured music by Jared Rubens, General Fuzz, and Gertie Beats with excerpted clips pulled from C-SPAN, CNBC, and more. Today's discussion featured Andreas Amantinopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, and Adam B. Levine with editing by Jonas.
2: And remember, kids, Blocky the Blockchain says listen to Let's Stop
1: Bitcoin. <laughs> if you have any questions...